0: Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival.
1: Enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's session. I'd like to kick off today by acknowledging the original storytellers, the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, and it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Dr. Sarah Ayoub. I'm a journalist and author who has spent the last 15 or so years contributing to papers like the Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian, The Australian, the Sydney Review of Books, as well as glossy magazines like Marie Claire Elle and Cosmopolitan. In addition to writing books for children and young adults, I'm also a lecturer in journalism and writing. And today, I am honoured to be in conversation with two very brilliant and esteemed Arab-Australian Muslim authors whose books were the absolute standouts of my 2021 reading year. Dr. Michael Mohammed Ahmed is the founding director of Sweatshop Literacy Movement and the editor of the critically acclaimed anthology After Australia. Mohammed's debut novel, The Tribe, won the 2015 Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist of the Year Award. His second novel, The Lebs, won the 2019 New South Wales Premier's Multicultural Literary Award and was shortlisted for the 2019 Miles Franklin Literary Award. Muhammad received his Doctorate of Creative Arts from Western Sydney University in 2017. Amani Haider is a lawyer, women's advocate, artist, writer and mum. Her writing has appeared in multiple publications, including Arab Australian Allah, the forthcoming anthology Another Australia, SBS Voices and more. Amani's artwork has been the focus of multiple exhibitions, included in a series on domestic violence with the ABC, and she was a finalist in the prestigious Archibald Prize. She recently won the UTS Law Alumni Award, and her memoir, The Mother Wound, was longlisted for a Walkley longlisted for an ABIA award shortlisted for two categories in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and won both the 2022 Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the FBI Radio Sydney Music Arts and Culture Awards please make these authors welcome <clears throat> Both of you have written important books that speak to your personal experiences, particularly as people from marginalised communities, but there's also something incredibly universal about them. In her reflections on growing up as a black American in Kentucky, the late scholar, writer and activist, Bell Hooks, wrote of her community as being uniquely positioned to understand both the margin and the centre. Living as we did... On the edge, we developed a particular way of seeing reality, she wrote. We looked both from the outside in and from the inside out. How have your experiences of living on the margins of society as Arabs and as Muslims enabled you to understand the world in its entirety and write so perfectly to both margin and centre? Go
2: okay, first. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I, too, would like to acknowledge that we're on Aboriginal land and I pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal people with us today. I speak a lot about trauma and displacement and intergenerational trauma and violence against women and I think within that it's crucial to centre the experiences of Aboriginal people and I'm mindful of that at all times. Um, In relation to writing the book, from my perspective as a Muslim woman... I perhaps first need to give some background about what the book is about. And for those who've read it, sorry, (laughs) Um, but I'll just quickly summarise. I lost my mum to domestic violence in 2015 in um, what was a really horrific act of um, domestic violence inflicted by my dad. My mum was the 30th or the 31st of about 80 or 81 women who lost their lives violently in Australia that year. And we were in a turning point at that time in terms of the way that the media was reporting on violence against women. Um, So that was front page news. And we were also in a point of time that was really interesting because we were seeing sort of the emergence of survivor testimony, and we were seeing stories like Chanel Miller from um, the US being uh, spoken about publicly, and the effects of gender-based violence becoming a more prominent item on the national agenda here. So, within that context, I had to navigate the grief of losing my mum, and I also had to wait two years for the murder to go to trial and for my dad to be tried. And during that period, I felt very silenced. And I felt silenced because of a number of things. Firstly, it's very scary to speak to the media when you're experiencing the symptoms of PTSD, when you're experiencing such life-changing events and where you don't know who to trust. And it's even more scary to speak to the media when you're a visibly Muslim woman. And we know that for a long time, the media wasn't our friend. I grew up um, in the post-9-11 era. I witnessed almost daily racism on the television towards my community. And I was conscious of the fact that I had the risk, or I faced the risk of being re-traumatized or re-victimized if I shared my story at a time when I wasn't ready to do so with people I didn't trust. So I promised myself that eventually I would tell my mum's story and I would tell my own story in my own words and that I would only do it when it was time, when it was a time that was suitable for me and when it was going to be an empowering experience for myself and for other Muslim women. I also have in my family and in my heritage a lot of loss owing to war. And I had lost my mum into, sorry, my maternal grandmother in 2006 in an Israeli drone strike in the south of Lebanon. And during that period, there was also reporting around the incident in which she was killed alongside other civilians. And I remember as a young person witnessing my mum speak to the media about that loss and about that experience. And I remember sensing that the way that your story is told is often unable, when it is told by others, unable to reflect the true nuance and complexity of your life and that if you want to advocate for yourself and for your loved ones and for your community, you need to be given the tools to do that yourself. So I don't know if that completely answers the question, but I think it's really important for our narratives to be told by us, I think it was really important for me to eventually find a way to tell my mum's story, my grandmother's story, in my own words, through my own art and in my own time. Thank you. That was great. Um.
0: I can answer it through a quick story. Uh, My... My relatives all basically lived on the same street in Lakemba. In fact, there's so many lebs in Lakemba that we call it Lebkemba. <laughs> and, you know, like, we're regularly at each other's houses. So I'm, one night I'm at my cousin's house, and we're hanging out, and all my aunties and uncles are around, and we hear screaming from outside. So we all jump up and we sprint outside, and two of my steroid-using cousins have gotten into a brawl, actually, over a girl. Uh, we, I laugh about it and say it's the face that launched 1,000 WRXs. <laughs> um, but they, the family, because we all live on the same street, very quickly mobilized. They all just jumped on this scrum and began screaming and shouting and pulling at each other. And, uh, you know, some really serious punches were thrown. And then the, the main antagonist, who in my book I fictionalized the name Coda, the, the main guy that, that picked the fight, um, after the fight he began to retreat to his car And um, my uncle, the the father of the son that got beaten out on his street curb, was so insulted, not that his son had got hit, but that it happened at his house that his nephew was so disrespectful to come and do this at his parents', at his auntie and uncle's house, that even my uncle went up to slap his nephew. And um, in that little scuffle, my coda got pushed back to the car. He was getting in his car, and then my uncle slammed the door on him, hit his leg, he got in the car turned it on, and then turned it on us, and he came straight at us, and he hit my uncle. I remember my uncle got clipped and rolled, and then um, we were, you know, pretty shocked by the incident. We're standing on the curb. It's the middle of the night, Um, and then Koda starts calling my cousin, the one he beat up, Uh, and it's the hat dance, you know, and so the hat dance is playing in in the pitch of night while, you know, under a streetlight, I can see what's happened to my cousin. He got beaten so bad that I remember half his face was just literally a different colour. It had just gone entirely red. He had lumps on his forehead from this thrashing, from this huge steroid munching cousin of ours. He had a busted nose, his eye had been gouged. I mean, he looked like he'd been mauled by a gorilla, you know? And um, someone in that moment, in that incident, uh, watching one of the neighbours, called the police. And so, in the middle of this, um, of this scene, the police rock up, and I remember the cops come out, they line up me and my cousins and my aunties and my uncles, um, my, my dad had rocked up by this point, my brother from down the street, um, they line us all up, and they've got the, the torchlight on my cousin, the one that got beaten up, and they can see that he was brutally thrashed, you know, and... Um, they wanted him to explain who did it. But we have a code in our community. It's like, you don't dob in your relatives to the cops. Um, mainly because of the whole... The similar phenomenon to the Black Lives Matter movement, you know? Like, we don't trust the white police officers um, any more than we trust our violent relatives. And so, you know, they're looking at him like, uh, who did this to you? And he wouldn't speak. And they're pointing the torch at every family member, and none of the family members are speaking. You know, and we all know if we just stay shut for a few moments, the cops will leave. But that phone won't stop ringing. And we know it's my cousin's cousin calling to continue to threaten him about this girl. Um, And the police officers are looking at my family like, Are you going to answer the phone? And we're looking back at them like, What phone? I can't hear anything. Can you hear anything? I can't hear anything. And you know, I, I as, as the years have gone by, this happened when I was about 19 years old, but as the years have gone by, I've really come to understand that phone ringing, which I can still hear in my head, as a, basically a metaphor for my life. You know, my uncle sexually abuses my sister, and the family just sweeps under the rug. Didn't happen. We don't know what you're talking about one of my uncles is beating his wife and hospitalizing her regularly and we're all looking at each other like, don't know what you're talking about. Just pretend the phone isn't ringing, you know? And when, when I hear Amani's story and I share these stories with you, I tell you that like these experiences is a phone ringing. And being a writer, uh, having the courage to tell your story, for Amani to tell her story, for me to share my story, that's us making that decision from the margins to answer the phone. Can I just make a really
2: important point that builds on that? There's plenty of research that shows that one of the reasons that domestic violence is underreported for Muslim women is because of distrust of the police and because of a fear of experiencing racism in addition to the abuse that they're already experiencing. And I think. That's really important because sometimes we tell these stories and people see it as an individual thing or one-family thing, but statistically it's having an effect on people's experiences of safety in our society.
1: Thank you. So they're both very different stories, but both of them appraise your respective cultural and religious contexts in different ways. You've shed some light on some of the darkness, on balancing the weight and virtue... Of those stories against the probability that the experiences within them would be weaponized against your communities. Now that you've spoken a little bit about the darkness in your stories, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the light.
2: So it's very hard to make a story like mine sound light, but the reality of our lives is that they are varied and you don't sort of travel along at one pace all the time. There are positive experiences I had with my dad, and that made the sense of betrayal that I felt as a result of his actions worse. There are so many beautiful moments of strength and resilience that I shared with my mum. She had successes and achievements despite facing barriers as a Muslim woman, despite being a migrant woman, despite having language barriers, despite having four children... I celebrate those things, and in my book, I also deliberately talk about, or I even start with the birth of my child. I'd start with the um, with my wedding, which was this period of optimism in my life. And in all my advocacy work, I come across victim survivors who who speak often about being known through their negative experiences or being understood only as a victim of violence and having their achievements and their happiness and their joy and their resilience forgotten or ignored. And people assumed that people like my mum were weak or passive or meek. When she wasn't, she she decided to pursue a career. She was one of two statewide quitline counsellors who could provide counselling in Arabic. She was a drug and alcohol clinician. She was enrolled in university at the time of her death. She did so many things and spoke out so passionately about the things that she felt strongly about. And I think it's really important that we remember these women when we count them as not just victims, but as people who were engaged in resistance every single day of their lives, as, as three-dimensional people who had joy and success and who deserved to keep having that in the future as well. So that's how joy and light comes through in, in my writing,
0: I think. Um, the, the Palestinian scholar Edward Said, probably his most famous book is called Orientalism, uh, talks about how when he used to work at the universities in the United States, in the, in the UK, um, he would notice that the curriculums always left out literature from the Arab canon. And he would talk about how unusual this was. We we're talking about a literature that's thousands of years old that represents hundreds of millions of people that has been entirely erased from you know, um, high school and university studies. And he argued that this isn't a coincidence. It's the intention of of an orientalist agenda to keep those narratives out of the hands of the masses. Because if you're going to illegally invade these people and drop bombs on them and kill their children, you have to make sure that they are dehumanised, that you don't see them in a complex and three-dimensional way. And literature is probably the primary way to do that to see the full humanity of of another person. In the case of the Arab and the Muslim canon, would you believe that it's actually incredibly romantic and chivalrous, and it's actually incredibly funny? And then think about the stereotypes and the single narratives you've heard about Arabs and Muslims throughout your lives, which is that we're barbaric, we're savage, we're patriarchal, we're misogynistic, we're sexist, that, that we don't love our children. If you look at the cartoons that Bill Leake was producing, for example, these simplistic narratives that make it so much easier to not lose any sleep when you know that a million Afghans and Iraqis were slaughtered because of, for oil and for resources. And so that's what we're pushing up against when we, when we are telling our stories, which is why it's important that we tell these kinds of more beautiful and humanising stories, the, the, more, the more poetic and romantic And comedic stories, because what we're doing is we're reclaiming a narrative in order to survive, uh, in order to reclaim our dignity and our humanity. And so in my new book, The Other Half of You, uh, I I wrote it as a letter to my son, who is a mixed race, Arab, Anglo-Australian kid, uh, being raised in an interfaith and intercultural home. And I'll just quickly tell you what that looks like, what, what it means to, ha- to ha- have talked to him and to tell him this story. Um, but I, I began writing the book on the, on the night he was born. It was 2015. And I remember uh, we got to the hospital uh, and Jane had powered through her contractions at home. So by the time we got to the hospital, uh, the midwife checked her and said, oh, you're a miracle worker. You're eight centimetres dilated. Your son will be here in an hour. And I remember after he was born, he um, I called my dad, and I told him the, the, your your grandson Khalil is born. The midwife said it's a miracle, and my father told me go and whisper in your son's ear Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah Ashhadu anna Muhammad rasulallah, which is the declaration of faith. So my dad's telling me go and make him a Muslim right now. Um, and then I called my father-in-law, and you know he's a middle-class white. Uh, hardcore atheist and I tell him hey your grandson has been born and the midwife said it's a miracle and he says well there's no such thing as miracles but I'm in tears all the same and and for me I feel like this is the perfect uh, narrative to understand what it means to be an Australian and to be raising children in Australia in the year 2015 in the year 2022 and that's I think where the beauty in our stories comes through
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. Honestly, every time I speak to these authors, I think I can't be more impressed by them. And then I speak to them again and it's like it just goes up more notches. Um, Amani, in The Mother Wound, you give your readers an unflinching account of your mother's murder, but you also shed light on your experiences in the justice system as a victim of crime. How did your background as a lawyer enhance your understanding of what was taking place and then what was it like for you to break that down so flawlessly for those of us without any legal understanding to show us essentially all the
2: work that still needs to be done? So when I lost my mum, I was a practising commercial litigation solicitor at a big ish firm in the city in the city, and a lot of my work was courtroom work, so I was representing mainly insurance companies sorry <laughs> in in courtrooms um, and I was learning a lot about advocacy and how to speak and present your case and essentially it 's a form of storytelling, and what you 're doing is going through this process of curating information in order to find what's the most relevant, what's going to fit with the rules of evidence, what's going to capture the judge's attention, what's going to best tell uh, the perspective or best convey the perspective of my client. And there's a huge advantage in having that kind of knowledge, I think. There's a massive privilege in it because the legal system can be inaccessible and it is very inaccessible for a lot of people who need it. It serves particular interests. It has uh, a history and particular functions that remain patriarchal, that remain uh, biased in favour of people who have money and access. Um, And to be able to bring that knowledge with me into my new perspective as a victim of crime was definitely something that helped me understand what was happening and helped helped me convey to my family what was happening as well. But to shift perspectives, to move away from being the person who's speaking in the courtroom, the person who's presenting, the person who's narrating, the person who's understanding the rules and understanding what's going to happen next was incredibly disempowering. And that's what I mainly learnt about the experience of victims of crime in our country. And... I remember saying to my counsellor, one of my very first counsellors, I've done a lot of counselling, um, my counsellor at the Homicide Victim Support Group, do I get to give a victim impact statement? Because immediately that was what came to mind as a potentially affirming or empowering experience that I could sort of try and look forward to um, towards the end of the trial. And she said yes. And I spent the two-year wait between the murder and the trial just ruminating on my victim impact statement. And victim impact statements are governed by particular rules, so you can't directly address the offender and say, you know, you did this, you did that, and I think this should happen to you. It's regulated. Um, So I was able to temper my expectations through my understanding of the legal system as well. But one of the things that happens when you experience that sudden shift in dynamics, not just in the courtroom, but also in my life more broadly, is you become quite attuned to where the system fails you, and it was everything. It was the architecture of that space being so small, having to be in really close proximity to the offender, having to confront my dad, essentially, about things I'd never spoken about for the first time in a public forum. I hadn't seen him since before the murder, and I had to walk in two years later and face him and give my evidence and recall things from my childhood... And then I had particular expectations about what kind of evidence I might be asked about and the process of a cross-examination ended up being very different and quite bewildering. And I didn't understand why until afterwards because being a victim within the system is very different to being the lawyer or the prosecutor or whoever's working on the case and being able to see uh, the, the, the process from a bird's eye view. And it took me a long time to sort of let go of that disappointment that came with having felt so confronted in the witness box, having felt that I couldn't say enough. um, Through the writing process, I actually came to realise something. So when I finished giving my evidence and after I was cross-examined and accused of lying, essentially, um, I felt that second to the day of the murder, that was the worst day. And... I went home and I really struggled to recover from that experience, and I spent a lot of the writing process trying to come to terms with that experience and trying to understand why it was so violating, and when I sat down to write the cross-examination, I ordered the transcripts from the court, because I, I knew that you could do that, I read them for the first time. And I found out that this experience of cross-examination, which in my head felt like it went for a whole day, at least two hours, was only 25 minutes of my life. And that was somehow really healing um, because I could recontextualise it into something a lot more manageable than what it had become in my mind. I also learned things about the violence itself that I didn't know beforehand. And I knew that it was going to be really important to get a solid understanding of the proceedings in order to share that with people who don't have legal knowledge or who weren't physically there. But, but just for context, the judgment itself was about 80 pages long. So to distill that into a couple of chapters was really difficult. And by the end of it, I was like, why have I put myself through this? Um, But I think it's really important that we demystify the legal process and that we begin to highlight some of the broader structures and systems that affect survivors of gender-based violence, because that's how we begin getting a, um, begin to get a policy response. That's how we can begin to change the way that the courtroom is set up, the way that evidence is taken, the way that cross-examination is conducted. We can make it more trauma-informed. We can make it more sensitive. We can make it an experience that isn't just focused on um, a punitive response to violence, but an experience that actually provides some kind of healing for the survivors, the people left behind, and also an experience that can bring out a bit more about the person who is is unable to be there to give their evidence, and that's the the victim of the homicide. So for me, um, being able to dig into that is really at the centre of most of my advocacy, and it was a really important part of writing the book.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'd like to come back to your writing shortly but, you know, um, it was really interesting for us to hear that because, like you said, it's something we don't understand and you broke it down so flawlessly, so well in the book. Um, Muhammad. there's a scene in your book where Bani, the main character, reflects on various moments where he's had to challenge his family on things like white supremacy, on patriarchy, on homophobia. Did his sense of responsibility as a character mirror what you might feel is your own responsibility as a writer and the misconceptions your work addresses both of your community and also by your community?
0: Um, I I can answer that by recounting an incident. Um, My mum and dad, one night, were going out to a wedding and they left me and my siblings at home. I've got four sisters and one brother. And my brother's a bit of a beefhead. you know. He's a gym junkie. Uh, and we're watching television and some, uh, something kind of funny happens on the TV and me and my four sisters start laughing and my brother's looking at us confused because he didn't get the joke. And so he's like, what, what's that mean? I didn't get it. What's so funny about that? And then my giggling younger sister says to him you're so dumb bro and he gets so upset he's like get the fuck out of my face right now and then she gets up and quickly uh runs to her room but i don't think he was satisfied with her very immediate desire to just diffuse the situation so then he got up and he went to her room to keep having a go at her about how disrespectful she is and this is at the point that i started to get quite frustrated with him because at this point not much else she couldn't do much else so I told him to leave her alone, and then he got stuck into me. And I remember we were having this huge fight, me and my brother, in the living room. He's a lot bigger than me and a lot stronger than me, so I was never afraid to punch him. So I was giving him all I had, and he was just kind of taking it and saying, come on, you fucking little shit. And we got so abusive to each other at one point that my, my four sisters jumped on us and started screaming and trying to pull us apart. And in that scuffle... The five of us—the the, me and my sisters—fell, and my brother was in such a rage that he did two things. He picked up this box of mandarins that was on the kitchen bench and threw it into the air, and he punched a hole straight through the bathroom door. And then he went and washed his hands and said a prayer and went to bed. We, we couldn't do it. now, me and my sisters. We couldn't do anything about the hole in the wall, but we could pick up the mandarins and salvage them to the best that we could put them back in the box, put them on the bench top, and went. all of us went to bed. At 2 a.m., my dad was in the living room screaming. We all came out, and he wants to know who put the hole in the, in the bathroom door. And my sisters and I at this point had agreed we weren't going to dob my brother in. We were just going to say something like we were playing baseball in the, in the living room or something. But my brother just came right out and admitted it. And he said, it was, I did it, it was my fault. And he started to cry. And I remember my dad just fuming, you know, like just processing images of what would have transpired while him and my mum were at the wedding. And in his rage, my dad screamed out, where do you learn this fucking shit? And he picked up the box of mandarins <laughs> that my brother had thrown that we packed up and he threw it into the air. And I will never forget his face when he saw those mandarins splattered before they even hit the ground. <laughs> so, to answer your question, um, you know, the, the, I think the moral of this story, which I write, I write about, is that uh, violence is learned behavior. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's, it's something that we inherit and that we pass on. And what I was doing in my life as an educated Arab Australian Muslim man was trying to use my reading and my writing and my critical thinking to break the cycle. And that's what my autobiographical alter ego in my stories is doing. He's using the literature that he's studied at university and that he studied on his own to try and break some of these very unhealthy habits that exist within these small, marginalised communities.
1: And all of these wonderful stories are in the book. So I encourage you to really pick it up because there's so many more, like, gems. Um, let's talk about... Sorry, can I also just <laughs> say...
0: Um, I, but I also like to, like to say, mine and Amani's book came out at the same time. Um, I wrote about the experience and the point of view of being an Arab Australian Muslim man. She wrote about the point of view of being an Arab Australian Muslim woman. And I, and I don't think it was a coincidence that our books came out at the same time. I do feel like that was a divine force. I think of my, my book, The Other Half of You, as one half, and the other half of The Other Half of You is The Mother Wound. And so if you want to do me the honour of reading my work, don't do it unless you're also going to read The Mother Wound.
2: Absolutely. And Mohammed's book is great. I read it immediately as well, and I, I 100% agree with what he's just said.
1: Let's talk about your work as writers What approaches and techniques inform your practice? You go first.
0: I'm sweating and panting right now, so I'll (laughs) I'll take a little deep breath.
2: Okay, so, all right. Um, Obviously, when you want to shift careers, you've got to first learn about what you want to do next. And I began writing at first for myself, and it was a sort of organic unconscious choice. It actually started as a therapeutic thing. My counsellor gave me a journal and she said, I think you need to write. I had a lot of anger and frustration that had nowhere safe to go. And writing gave me a safe place That to emerge. And so did my art making practice. I began drawing and experimenting and looking at what other artists are doing, and that was a very mindful practice. And it gave me an opportunity as well to return to something that I loved as a child. And I know that for many trauma survivors, you feel disconnected from your childhood self. You feel that there's been a disruption or a fragmentation of your journey through life and when you begin healing you begin to rediscover who you were before before the trauma and art was a really immediate accessible way for me to begin doing that as was writing and then I started to take my writing more seriously because I started to feel a sense of intent and a sense of purpose. I started to feel that Um, I needed to tell my mum's story, I needed to tell my grandmother's story and going back to what I said earlier, I needed to be the person to do it Um, and as Muhammad touched on, when you do that, you become the cycle breaker so I felt a real sense of responsibility in doing so and that sense of responsibility meant that I had to learn what I was actually doing because the writing that I had been doing to date was in a legal context and I was trying to challenge The law, I was trying to challenge how my mum's story emerged in the courtroom, and I couldn't do that by just replicating what I already knew. So I started working on my craft. I started working on it first on my own. Um, Then I joined Sweatshop and the Sweatshop Women's Collective, where I was able to get mentoring and feedback and guidance from Winnie Dutton, who's an excellent um, editor. And within that environment, I was able to hone in my craft in a safe space with other women who had similar, sometimes different experiences, but who I knew wouldn't judge or who wouldn't um, sort of uh, read what I was trying to do through a white lens. And that was really important because I wanted writing to be an empowering thing for me, and I didn't want to lose the sense of safety that I'd gained as a writer. And as time went by, I began to feel more and more confident Um, in my writing skills, in my creative practice, I became more consistent. Um, I think it's really important for me to be able to uh, be experimental. So even though I wrote a memoir, there are sections of it that I think were creative risks. Um, You know, I tried to imagine alternatives to what had happened and think of other scenarios because often you can get bogged down when you're writing about your lived experience in the facts of what's taken place. But if you're doing creative writing and you want that to be something that uh, challenges reality, your reality, and challenges what people know about you, then you need to be prepared to do something a little bit different. So I I did challenge myself to imagine different outcomes. You know, what if my dad had made that choice not to use violence? Because it is a learned behaviour, as you said, and it is a choice. It's not just a condition that I was born into um, that was inevitable. This is behaviours that are learned over time and researchers say the exact same thing. Um, And I also wanted to be responsible in the sense that my story wasn't mine alone. So when I tell my grandmother's story, I, I really am careful to not centre myself as someone who was in another country at the time that it was happening. And even though I felt that grief and that trauma immensely and it disrupted our lives in a way that I still struggled to articulate, I wanted to, in the writing process, include the perspective of someone who was there. And that's why I went to my cousin, Zainab, who was 13 years old at the time. She was part of the convoy that was evacuating from my home village um, when they were set upon by the drones. And several people were killed in that incident, including a one-year-old baby. And I wanted a child's perspective on war and what that does and what kind of resolution, if any, we can get. So I think there's some sort of important parts of my writing practice and um, being trauma-informed, being sensitive to my position within the narrative, being uh, respectful... Of other people's experiences um, was was really an important part of writing the book. Yeah, that's so valuable. Thank you, Muhammad.
0: Um, yeah, thanks, Amani. Um, uh, you, you know, I've spent twenty years trying to answer this question on uh, why do we write? Like, what is this uh, compulsion we feel as human beings to document and record uh, stories in a in a way that celebrates and emphasises the skill and the craft of language. I think it's a mystery, but this is the best, the closest I can give to an answer. Um, You know, when you're in high school, you learn metaphor. You learn, like, what is a metaphor? Um, But it's actually an incorrect way to learn about metaphors because there isn't a thing called a metaphor. There's literally thousands of different kinds of metaphors. Uh, I'll tell you some of my favourites. A dead metaphor. Uh, is a metaphor that's been used so much that you don't even notice it's a metaphor anymore. So, for example, uh, winding down your car window. I can see a few faces in the audience who absolutely remember when we actually used to do that, when we used to wind it down. We still say we wind it down, but now we press a button. So that's a dead metaphor. Phones ringing is another example of a dead metaphor. I mean, there was a time when your phone at home literally used to ring, it used to have a bell in it, and used to make a ringing sound. But now it's a digital sound, but we still say your phone's ringing. So these are dead metaphors. Another type of metaphor I really like is called a metonym, where a part represents the whole or the whole represents the part. So a good example of this is something like the the press. The press interviewed the celebrity. I mean, when we say press, we mean the entire media machine. But in reality, when we say something like, the press interviewed the celebrity, it might just be a few journalists at the airport. And so that's a metonym, that's a particular kind of metaphor. Another metaphor I really like is called an absolute metaphor. So this is a metaphor that's so metaphorical, that it is absolutely a metaphor without any debate. So if you said something like, um, his heart is an ocean, right? I mean, it's very deep. (laughs) Maybe it's very big. But they're so clearly different that it's clearly a metaphor. So we call this an absolute metaphor. And you know, um, the meaning, the ancient meaning of the word metaphor is transport. It's actually an ancient Greek word because the idea is that it takes you from one place to another. In fact, you can still find moving vans in Greece, that have the word metaphor on them. Um, and you know, I think about this image all the time, Just imagine it with me, of a, 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 flo- a, a group of birds on the concrete floor. You know, you, 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 you run up to them, you startle them, and the way they all get up together off the, off the ground, you know, their, their wings flapping and their, their claws lifting off the ground. You hear that sound. And you know, the most amazing thing, one time I heard newspaper being scrunched up in my mum's hands, she just grabbed a bunch of newspaper and scrunched it up, and I remember realizing that those two sounds, which just seem so unbelievably different, actually are quite similar. They, I couldn't I couldn't comprehend the fact that these two quite distinctly unique situations can sound so similar to the to the human ear. Um. So so here's here's my point. Uh, the you know Einstein used to talk about uh, the universe. As this, What he found so mysterious about it and beautiful about it is that it seems so chaotic. But amid all that chaos, what scientists have been able to do is pretty much quantify most of it in just a perfect equation that can fit on one line. And this is the language that scientists have been using to m- make sense of what looks like a very chaotic and unexplainable universe. Mathematics is the language of a scientist, this perfect equation on a line. And I think for us as writers, things can seem really, really chaotic. They can seem so random and accidental. But when I think about metaphors, the fact that two utterly, utterly distinct sounds and experiences can just be so similar to the ear, or that a heart can be compared to a, an ocean. Um, when I think about the way our brain can find the connections between one thing and another, that is the writer's way of making order of what seems chaotic. And so for me, like metaphors and the, the poetry in language It's our mathematics, and it's how we as storytellers make sense of the universe. We put it in order for you.
1: If we have more time, I might ask you about the obstacles that you face or how you deal with the obstacles that you might face in your practice, but I did want to ask you, about your experiences of writing your stories as who you are. So um, in her recent work, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, Palestinian-Australian scholar and author Dr. Randa Abdel-Fattah talks about an entire generation of Arab and Muslim young people who grew up not really knowing the world before 9-11. Both of you have come of age at a time of intense scrutiny and I want to know what it was like for you, not just as Arabs, not just as Muslims, not just as writers, but in terms of your identity, your gender identity. So in what ways was your otherness amplified by your gender?
2: Um, for me, the obvious one is that I, I didn't grow up wearing a hijab, but women around me did, and I was conscious of the way that they were viewed um, in public. And I... I felt that people would stare at my mum and I would feel that, you know, all young people want their parents to be a little bit less visible and I remember feeling that in that, you know, um, amplified way um, about her hijab. But I have to say that I didn't think about it too much until I put the hijab on myself and that was as an adult. That was a few years ago um, in 2015. And it's very beautifully put in the book. Thank you, thank you and often we get told those stories as this huge pivotal coming of age moment in a a Muslim girl's life where she makes this decision and this commitment and for me it was such a non-event because my mum had just been murdered I had just had a baby and I had so much going on that I made the choice in the moment and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and reminding myself of my mum and my grandmother and feeling a deep sense of security within that So my experience was different to the experiences of uh, discrimination, um, uh, lack of belonging that a lot of my Muslim sisters have faced, especially those who wore it when they were younger and were never welcomed into the sorts of spaces that I was able to be welcomed into. And when you have that... When you when you have that change in perspective as a grown up, you're able to observe the difference in how you're treated, in how um, you know what kinds of obstacles you're going to face, and things like that. So for me, um, I I wanted to show in the book that there was this little moment, but in the scheme of things, it was not so big. And I think that's what happens when your culture and your religious practice is just part of your day to day life. To other people, it seems like a really big overwhelmingly uh, dominant part of your um, day-to-day living. But we're like the fish in the bowl of water. It's, that's just part of my world and it's um, as, as natural as anything else. So I was very conscious of the fact that I might experience um, discrimination. I was p- extremely conscious of the way that the media would frame my mum's story as being a Muslim problem rather than a problem with patriarchy and uh, the fact that it fits within the broader narrative around gender-based violence that we're having in this country. Um, And I was very conscious of those things, but I think um, I had, by that point, really just resolved that I am who I am and I was quite content in that. And I wanted that to come through in the narrative and I deliberately mentioned that I took my daughter to my first doctor's visit um, wearing a hijab and uh, the appointment was in Auburn. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. <laughs> Nobody cared that I looked so different and all this effort that I'd gone into. And it was just another day in my world and a lot of um, what, what informs my world and a lot of my cultural practices and my religious practices are so ingrained in who I am that I I feel that it would be really artificial to extract them and analyse them as if they're something separate to me.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, So, going from the beginning, you know, like September 11, um, which is what ignites uh, Randa Abdul-Fattah's book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, you know, I went to Punchbowl Boys High School and I, I... I went there when the school was surrounded by barbed wires and cameras. It was regularly appearing in the news. It was regularly identified as New South Wales' most troubled school. And 95% of the the student population, even though it was a public school, were Arab and Muslim background. And there's no way I could sugarcoat this. I'm just going to come right out and say, on the morning of September 11, the boys at my school were celebrating. They were really excited about this. And they, they they were parading in the playground. That was one distinct feature that I remember noticing when I arrived at the playground the morning of September 11. The other distinct feature that I remember noticing is that the the Australian flag at our school had been put at half-mast. It was the flag in the centre of the quadrangle and the principal had come out that morning and put it at half-mast. Now, by lunchtime, the teachers were so disgusted and fed up by the boys' behaviour that they called an emergency assembly. And they brought all the boys together for a period to lecture us on how disgusting our behavior was on this day and how we should all be mourning. And I remember this young Palestinian boy sitting in the audience the whole time that we received this lecture with his hand up, waiting to speak. And those teachers ignored him. They made him wait one hour with his hand up. Finally, at the end of the period, he was allowed to ask a question or make a statement. And here's what he said. He said he had been at the school since 1998. It was 2001, so he'd been at the school for three years. Since that time, hundreds and thousands of Arabs and Muslims like us had been slaughtered because of the foreign policies of Australia, the United States and Israel, and never once did the school come out and put the flag at half-mast. But today, Americans have died and you want us to grieve. And then the boys basically kicked off a riot as 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 an emotional reaction to this young Palestinian boy's statement. I wrote that story out last year for the Sydney Morning Herald, um, for the 20 year anniversary of the September 11 attacks and I received two types of feedback. I received feedback from the Arab and the Muslim community threatening feedback and the, 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 the basic complaints that I received is that my stories were perpetuating negative stereotypes about Arabs and Muslims and that I was an Uncle Tom and a, and a traitor and at the same time I received lots of criticism from the Jewish community who emailed me and threatened me and let me know and contacted the Sydney Morning Herald to let them know that my piece was anti-Semitic. And you know why I got negative feedback from both communities? Because I really think that we want to live in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think we want to live in a world where there's good guys and there's bad guys, where everything is black and white and everything is simplistic. And the reality of the world is that it's not simplistic. The reality of the world is that there are predatory men in our communities who commit heinous crimes against our sisters. And at the same time, it's fucking racist to call Arab and Muslim men all sexual predators and, and and violent extremists. And that's where our writing comes into play. That's what I think Amani and I are trying to do. We're trying to offer a complex portrayal of a complex experience because being a human being is complex.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you.
0: Okay. I would now like to invite
1: anyone in the audience to ask a question. Please keep it brief. There is a session straight after this. We have a microphone here and a microphone there. Um, And as you make your way to those microphones, I would also like to point out that both their books are available in the bookstore and you can get them signed after this session. You will not be disappointed. If you don't own the books already, please buy them. Um, And so, yes, microphone here and microphone there. I have a lot of a lot more questions if you don't have
0: While the line. microphone is wandering, I want to add, uh, Sarah Ayoub is an incredible young adult author. And, if, you know, our books are good for the adults in the room, but if you've got young people who you want to start having these conversations with, invest in Sarah Ayoub's books. Her Thank new you. book is called The Thank Cult you. of Romance. Thank you. And it is the young Just adult <laughs> narrative <laughs> the adult narrative that we hold. Thank you.
1: All I wanted to do was say thank you. Muhammad. I've read your new book and it's just magnificent. Such a, a complex portrayal of life and uh, just so struck by the tenderness and the beauty of the character Barney, so thank you. I'm running out to buy yours next. Um, <laughs> thank and you. Amazing conversation, um, brilliant, brilliant questions. W- what are you guys working on next? Give us a sneak peek. What's, what's happening
2: next It's a good question. Okay, so I've got um, a piece of non-fiction being published in an anthology later this year. I have a piece of fiction being published in Another Australia, which is out soon. Um, I'm working on some illustrations that will be um, in a kid's chapter book in, to accompany a story written by Dr Randa Abdel Fattah. And I'm working on some illustrations for another book um, that will be for an older audience um, also coming out later this year. So doing a bit of drawing and a bit of writing. <laughs> um,
0: uh, you know, anyone that knows me and my work knows that actually writing is probably about 20% of what I do and what my real passion is is working with the next generation, empowering them to read, write and think critically, which is why I kicked off a literacy organisation in Western Sydney, both of which I've been very successful at making succeed and and have been able to build momentum because wonderful people like Amani and uh, Sarah have been a part of the movement and have been contributing to the work we've been doing. And so what I'm working on at the moment is a series of anthologies, a series of publications supporting the writers in our community to tell their own stories, to have their own books, to have their own platforms. And so, by chance, I predicted that question like this might come up, so I do have some bookmarks that I'll give you at the the book signing table that, you know, we've got so many amazing sweatshop anthologies that showcase the work of the kids that we're working with in our community. They're available at the bookshop. Um, The the most recent one is called Blacklight, 10 Years of First Nation Storytelling. It's in the title what it's about, but it's the first anthology we produced, entirely produced by First Nations writers. And it's a it's a collection of writing that we've accumulated over 10 years. And so check out Sweatshop, Sweatshop.ws is our website. Check out the Sweatshop books at the at the um, at the uh, at the bookshop and um and know this that uh, me and and Amani and Sarah, we are part of, we are uh, pieces in a, in, a, in a big jigsaw puzzle of just incredible work that's coming out from culturally and linguistically diverse communities from Western Sydney at the moment. And really, if you want to see the full picture, you're going to have to start grabbing these books, all these books, and making a full sense of the jigsaw puzzle. Did
1: you have a question? Yeah, please come to the microphone. Thank you.
2: Hello, Sarah, Amani, Mohammed. Thank you so much for such a wonderful talk. My name is Daisy. Um, I just wanted to sort of ask about... I'm sort of a young writer writing um, personal essays about some of my own trauma, and I think um, being at the start of sort of navigating that experience, um, I guess I'm sort of still trying to figure out how to do that in a way that's safe for me, that's safe for the people I'm writing about, um, especially in a trauma kind of... ..through the lens of trauma. Um, And I guess I wondered advice, tips or even just generally about how you navigate those um, sort of challenges around trauma and memory in writing so personally and so intimately um, on quite a sort of public scale? Okay, so I I like this question because a lot of what I do is in in the advocacy, in the DV advocacy space, is talk about having trauma-informed practice. And I think that you can have trauma-informed practice in every industry and in every kind of work. Um, because a lot of people are traumatised, it's not some unique anomalous experience. We live in a society that perpetuates a lot of violence and um, a lot of us are survivors of multiple traumatic incidents, not just one. Um, I, there's no guidebook on how to do this, so in my, I can speak about what I did in my writing process and how I answered those questions for myself. One of the things that I had to recognise from the outset was that there is a difference between writing for yourself and then turning outwards and writing for people who will eventually read it. And you might not be ready to do that. And it's important to honour that timing and pay attention to it because ultimately the story that you tell when you're not ready is um, often incomplete and lacks the types of nuance that we've been talking about and the complexity that we've been talking about. I also thought a lot about um, what parts of my story were mine to tell and why my trauma in particular was relevant to the public conversation and why it needed to be known or read. And you could argue on one hand that it doesn't need to be known or read, but I think that something really missing from a lot of the conversations that feminists have had over the years and a lot of the conversations that are happening now is a it are perspectives of women from diverse backgrounds, perspectives of women of faith, perspectives of Aboriginal women, perspectives of uh, women of colour from various communities. And we talk a lot about intersectionality as a buzzword and we don't apply it necessarily in our craft or our writing unless we're conscious of it. And I think that... Because my writing is couched in my advocacy or speaks to my advocacy, um, it's important that both of those things inform one another. So, for me, it was important to know from the outset that I was not just speaking about gender-based violence, but I was speaking about the ways that that intersects with experiences of racism... (laughs) Um, the ways that 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 intersects with my particular perspective as a lawyer, the way that intergenerational trauma has carried on through my family from experiences of war, occupation and displacement. And I felt that that was really missing from the broader conversation. So intent is important. Um, And in terms of day-to-day writing practice, I think one of the really simple things like having a beginning and an end um, I didn't learn that until right towards the end of my writing process. I was writing in my head constantly. I was writing in my sleep. I would wake up having problem-solved things and formulated sentences as I slept. And, I, and that's not meant to be some romantic notion. It was a very difficult thing to... Um, overcome and I learned eventually right towards the end that you should have a ritual to mark the beginning of your writing practice and a ritual to end it and that can be something as simple as okay it's really (laughs) corny but light a candle or have a particular I use um, frequency music (laughs) to to get me to concentrate so these things are very very they seem really benign but it's really important for me to be able to sustain my writing practice I take it very seriously and I want to be able to develop those techniques that other people can sort of use as well. Um, so that's some of my, um, how I think about it. And I'm not sure if that answers your question, but definitely intent and self care, yeah. self respect. Yeah.
1: We have 15 seconds okay. if you okay. want Sorry, to add Mom anything, and... Mohammed.
0: <laughs> um. Actually, all I have to add is that Amani's wisdom and courage in this particular area is really all you need to build your own courage and wisdom in the field. So the best place to start if you're thinking about writing trauma is with her book, The Mother Wound.
1: Please make our authors feel welcome.
0: You've been listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to swf.org.au for more great content.